Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Emil Kalinowski, and I am joined today with Jeff Snyder of Alhambra Investments. This is our inaugural attempt to put together a grassroots effort, as Jeff will explain in a second, to consider the what's behind the economy, what's behind finance, and it's really a money-focused show, and it's going to be part of a much larger a, uh, effort with a cast of hundreds and maybe thousands. Our goal is to shoot for cult status, eventually religion, but for right now, it's just going to be the two of us. It's not even episode one. I would even say it's ne episode negative five. It's a soft opening. We just wanted to get on the air and start talking about some of the events that are taking place right now. Jeff, welcome. Thanks for uh, agreeing to do this. T tell the audience a little bit about what your vision is, what your goal well, is. First of all, Emil, I gotta thank you for taking your time out to help me put this together and that, uh, put together what we really hope is a collaborative effort to try to explain to people What's really going on out there? I mean, obviously, you know, we've been talking about this stuff for many, many years, and, and we have, you know, private conversations about all these things. And I think for the first time, maybe in, in most adult people's, uh, adults' lives, they're starting to get the sense that, hey, you know, there really is something going on here that we don't, we seem to be missing. And it's not just us. It's not just a layperson on the street that's missing this. You know, we've been taught our whole lives that the Federal Reserve and any central bank is this this massive, powerful, money-printing monster that if it wants to, it can just create any condition, can create any price, it can do whatever it wants to do. And yet here we are uh, sitting here in, in March of 2020, and it's pretty obvious that, well, no, they, they at least have some kind of limitations. But more than that, it really does seem like they're missing something too. Because no matter what the Federal Reserve does or the ECB or any of these central banks, it always seems to be coming up short. There's something is missing. And so our goal here, and Emil, I know you share this as much as I do, and we have a, we're very emotionally involved and invested in this, is what is that something? Let's start to explain what that something might be. Let's put all of these pieces together and let's 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 put it out there so that people can understand for themselves. And so our goal, you know, what we what we intend to do, both Emil and myself, is to is to identify these pieces to try to put them together in some kind of coherent, cohesive fashion and let people decide for themselves, you know, does this make sense? Does it work? Does it explain the world around us? Is it the missing pieces that we're all looking for? Because, you know, this is what's going on right now. Well, and today is a particularly interesting day, but let me just quick, so people who might not know who you are, which I doubt very much as you're the world's foremost monetary plumber, uh, but me, people may not know who I am. I'm uh, Emil Kalinowski, and I work in the metals and mining industry, and I've just been following Jeff's work for since September 2015. But, you know, Jeff, kind of what I'm going to, the way I like to think about it is that we're going to be rediscovering or re-identifying, bringing forth ideas that have already been discussed previously, knowledge that had been lost, because... The idea that uh, something is missing, you know, just you and I, who are we? We're nobody, right? We didn't, we're, we'll just cut to the chase, we're nobody. But there are monetary luminaries that you have identified in your series with Eric Townsend on Macro Voices, monetary luminaries 
in the 50s, 60s, 70s who were saying, this is what it is out there, that thing that we'll be discussing. And we're just going to be bringing that, back, that knowledge back. And hopefully, you know, it gets into the, the zeitgeist again uh, of popular opinion. I think this is the moment because the Fed's failing. Well, yeah, I guess that's a spoiler alert. We feel that the Fed's failing at, at its job. And I, I like to think of it as the... Um, that the Greeks knew that the earth was round and that the earth rotated around the sun. That knowledge was discovered. It was known. It was calculated. And then it was lost and then it was rediscovered. And I just feel like we're going to be bringing back, you know, this is what the monetary luminaries of the 50s, 60s, and 70s thought. They thought that the Federal Reserve and central banks were not central. There was some other entity, amorphous, amoeba-like entity out there that was creating all this monetary essence that the world ran on and that's why well we'll, we'll get into it in detail more but let, jeff today's a special day as you said today is march 23rd and the federal reserve announced like oprah that everyone is getting whatever they want it's not just going to be one bank you get a car you get bank reserves you get bank reserves everyone gets bank reserves today uh, this is live, you know, happening news right now. What do you think about today's announcement? Well, you know, Emil, here we are again. Um, it's another day, another massive Fed bazooka, so-called, because, you know, things are not going the way that they're supposed to be going. Let's, you know, back up here. What is the Federal Reserve supposed to do? What is its primary job? And its primary job is not full employment and inflation. Those are derivative mandates that came about after the Great Depression and the Great Inflation, after the Fed had previously failed at its primary job. And its primary job is currency elasticity. That's all it's really supposed to do. You know, think about Walter Badgett going back into the 19th century. A central bank is supposed to make currency available to the system during times of crisis. Obviously, we're in a time of crisis, but what we don't have is currency elasticity. And that much is clear because day after day, moment after moment, fire sale, assets on sale, you know, we've got all of these markets that are in dysfunctioning which is a monetary function that's supposed to be uh, filled by the, by the central bank, and it's not being done. Jeff, very quickly, uh, can you tell us what Walter Badgett said, his famous quote about lending freely, and then can you dumb it down for me? I'm a graduate of Arizona State University. Uh, so when you say currency elasticity, what does that mean? Please speak to me as a graduate of Arizona State University. Just get kind of, what does that mean? But Walter Badgett's famous, famous dictum from his book Lombard Street in 1873 basically said, you lend free, a central bank should lend freely at high rates on good collateral. What it was really saying is, you know, on a monetary panic, which usually was associated with depressions, there, we, there's no reason for, to have a monetary panic, and therefore there's no reason to let economic contraction turn into a depression. The reason is what happens in a lot of these times is that individual banks get caught up in them and because people are panicking, because money becomes very dear, to use a Milton Friedman term, because that happens, uh, we end up destroying much more than needs to be destroyed. You know, creative destruction needs to happen. Bad firms need to go out of business. But we don't need bad ba or good banks to go out of business with bad banks. Banks that have been behaving unwisely or stupid or insane, you know, doing bad things with uh, a credit, sure, those need to go out of business. They were bad businesses. They were bad banks. They should be. Um, destroyed along with the the economic contraction. But currency elasticity says, you know, we don't need the money supply to contract so much 
that it inhibits good parts of the system. So the central bank is instituted, or was instituted at least with the idea that when, the, when these times came for contraction, there would stand ready and, <clears throat> excuse me, there would stand ready a government agency, which were quasi government agency, a bank, central bank, whatever you want to call it, that would stand ready to issue currency to those banks that demonstrated to them that they were good banks. They had good collateral, which meant they were not an insolvent, um, bankrupt firm. They, were, they had good collateral. They could go to the central bank. They could get some kind of currency so that they could remain open. And that would allow these good banks to survive a monetary panic. And that would preserve enough of the system's functioning that we wouldn't have to turn something bad into something catastrophic. And that's so really the purpose. It sounds a little bit like what's happening at my grocery store, right? The, uh, everyone is hoarding the hand, sanitize, hand sanitizer, the toilet paper. I like, uh, that's like primary dealers right now, right? Instead of redistributing freely into the system, uh, collateral, cash, whatever it is, they're hoarding. They dare not step out into the, and catch the contagion into the crisis. They, you know, they're scared, especially after 12 to 13 years of seeing what happens when you step out there. Uh, and so they're hoarding, they're holding back. And so this is when the central bank is supposed to step in and offer liquidity to everyone. And Jeff, why are you so upset? What's, what's going on? What's the deal? Why are you upset that the central bank, the, around which the entire universe, universe uh, revolves, uh, they just announced QE infinity and and what and and you're not happy with it i'm just going to share very quickly with the audience i'm going to share very quickly this graph of primary dealers so that was that was the point i was making earlier that you know, over here from 2001 until let's say august 2007 primary dealers were redistributing uh, U.S. Treasuries into the market. Why? Because why would anyone hold U.S. Treasuries the most riskless asset? Why bother? Why? When you, everyone's making uh, returns, when there's no risk. And then since then, you've seen what has happened. They have held back more and more. This is their net position. So they've held back more and more and refused to share it with people. And this is the year-over-year -year change in that total. So go ahead, Jeff. Am I, you know? Well, we're talking about collateral, as you know, Emil. It's it's really about how does this this monetary system function? How does it function? How does it really work? And the answer is that um, the way the monetary system works is far different than what they teach you in in, in any economics course, whether it's advanced or uh, basic level. You know, it's not a monetary system that has any money in it. It's it's a wholesale system where Banks get together and form these interbank networks where they, they trade basically liabilities and assets back and forth. And a big part of it is something called repo. If people aren't familiar with repo, all it is is a collateralized short-term loan. You have cash. I have treasuries. I want to finance portfolio positions. You have the cash to do it. So every day we get together. Mm -hmm. I give you the treasuries. You give me the cash. And then tomorrow morning, same thing, except, you know, Sometimes I don't always have treasuries. Sometimes I have just junk because as you said, Emil, treasuries are boring. They don't offer that great of a return relative to what you could get in other things. 
Therefore, I want to take on a little bit more risk because I want to enhance my return. Now, I'm doing it because I think, well, I'll take on risk, but it won't be all that much more risk. But still, you know, it's a little bit riskier. It's a better return. And if I can get, you know, the same terms in repo from you that I get on my U.S. treasuries for financing using treasuries, if I can get the same terms with this riskier asset, well, why wouldn't I do that? That would be great. It would enhance my return. I'm getting the same financing from you in repo. Everything's awesome. So that I get, you know, a risky or more risky corporate bond. You accept it in repo on basically the same terms as the treasury, maybe a little bit different spread, a tiny adjustment, nothing, nothing too great, which I can ease a uh, cost I can easily absorb because of, I'm investing in a much riskier asset. And we do that every day, back and forth. You give me the cash, I give you the collateral, we change it back the next day. Everything's fine. Then one day you say, wait a minute, I was an idiot. Why was I taking this corporate debt at the same terms I was, I was U.S. Treasury? Because they're starting to really look questionable. Let's put it that way. And, and so tomorrow when we get together, I'm going to do the same. I intend to do the same thing. I want your cash. You've got, uh, you want my collateral, except you don't want my collateral. All of a sudden you say, you know, Jeff, uh, you were giving me this corporate bond yesterday, and I was giving you the same terms or basically the same terms I, give you, I was going to give somebody a U.S. Treasury and repo. I need more from you today because I need more security. If I give you my cash and you give me this corporate bond, I'm a little bit more, I'm a little bit nervous about it. So you got to give me a little bit more corporate bond to get the same amount of cash that you gave me yesterday. And if I have, a, you know, extra corporate bonds and in inventory, then, you know, I might be willing to do that and I can give you the corporate bonds, you know, additional corporate bonds over collateralize a little bit further. And then we can go on with our business. The problem is, what if I don't have additional corporate bonds in my inventory? You say I need more security. I, I say, well, I don't have it. What do I do then? And that's kind of where we are. We're in a position where um, financial agents, not just banks, but non-banks too, have been financing these risky positions in repo all over the world in U.S. dollar terms. And they're finding that their, their repo counterparties, the people who have been financing them with cash, are saying, you got to put up more collateral. This 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 junk that you've been using that we've good been collateral, right? We've been giving you good terms. Well, I mean, even if you give me more junk, you just got to give me more of something. Hmm. So if I don't have more junk, then what do I do? You have to start scrambling for good collateral, which you will, you will accept, or I have to I have to sell the, the the stuff that I can't repo, that junk that I was using before. It just it's got to go onto a market and be fire sale. So that's kind of where we are now. We're at a position where. A lot of this junk stuff had gotten into the repo market because, you know, for a couple of years there, people thought globally synchronized growth was a real thing and that the, the global economy was going to pick up. And that's, you know, actual economic growth, uh, you know, solves a lot of problems, especially, you know, if you're holding junk paper and the economy is really booming, people mm -hmm. don't know it's junk because it, it performs. It's doing all the things that you would expect of good collateral. It's only when things start to reverse, economically speaking, that we start to, to see, see these cracks in the system where, you know, junk collateral starts to behave like junk and all of a sudden it becomes non-negotiable. That's right. And, and this crisis that's happening right now is not just a random crisis in the middle of some random year, but it happens to be at the tail end of 12 years of lethargic non-growth. As you often see in your writing, it's non-linear uh, recession. You, you don't put it in this terms, but it's like a nonlinear recession. Sure, we're recording positive numbers, but they're not positive enough because human ingenuity, human civilization moves 
already at a positive pace, right? We're already expecting, let's say, 2% growth as the baseline. So let's say we're recording 1%. That actually means we're falling behind. And, the reason, and so we're falling behind and economic activity isn't generating the kind of collateral we would be creating in a healthy system, right? Businesses that are self-financing, that can repay their debts, that can continue growing based on the demand that they see in the future. You know, that's, that's true collateral, true collateral creation. But now we've fallen back into a, a system where it's all financialized and the actual system that generates good collateral isn't there. And so in your, and so now there, that's where these shortages come around from these we have, we've had four of them now, and this one seems to be the fourth one. And now there's uh, now we're into stage two of the fourth one. It happens to be coinciding with the, with the virus, which is pushing everything down. And in your last article, now I've, as I told the audience at the beginning, I've been reading you since September, 2015. And that in, in that entirety, and I've been listening to you on, on real vision and on macro voices and when people ask you, well, what's the solution? You're very hesitant. I, I remember once you said something. And it's not because you're holding back. It's just a very complicated problem. So who knows what the right answer is. But your last article, your last article, finally, the solution is to stop being backward at Alhambra Investments. You actually offered a prescription for the first time and in my, in my memory in five years of what you think could be a possible solution. And if I understand what the Fed's announcement is today, they're doing precisely the opposite. You said, create collateral, get together, create collateral, come up with a system to generate collateral for the wider economy. And today's announcement is they're going to be taking collateral out and giving people bank reserves, banks, financial institutions. Have I misunderstood that? Yeah. And you know, the reason I don't want to offer prescriptions about what we should do next most of the time is that, you know, I don't have enough information. I've been, I've been studying this, this monetary system for a very long time. And even after that, that, you know, long time of doing this, you know, I still don't know everything that I would want to know to, to offer any kind of helpful, what I, what I would hope would be an effective solution. But, you know, times have changed here. We're in the midst of what is a legitimate crisis. And, in a lot of ways, it's starting to look even worse than maybe 2008 was. And I don't want to be, you know, get overly, overly concerning here, but it's, there's a lot of elements of this, especially with the virus pandemic, the way the economy is going to be over the short run, the, the level of uncertainty right now is worse than it ever was in 2008. And that can be harmful. And that's, again, where the central bank is supposed to show up. When the point of, you know, between the point of where uncertainty becomes action, the central bank is supposed to be in the system supplying free currency so that uncertainty doesn't become catastrophe. And what we have right now is a situation where the Fed just keeps doing the same thing over and over. All they're really doing is adding bigger numbers to the same thing. They, they're trying to people. Aren't they adding the currency? You just said adding currency, currency elasticity. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. I mean, you know, they're, they're you know, creating bank reserves and bank reserves to me is just, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's some, one of those things that makes my blood boil because it's associated with money printing and it sounds like it should be money printing. It's even included into, into some of the uh, monetary um, calculations like M zero, right? It, it's money stock. 
that's how we, we treat these bank reserves, except they don't function as money in any way, shape, or form. Nobody can walk into a grocery store with a bank reserve and, and come out of the grocery store with, even if they have toilet paper, you can't buy toilet paper with bank reserves, even if you wanted to. The only people that are allowed to have bank reserves are these primary dealers that do business with the Federal Reserve. Therefore, even on its own terms, a bank reserve is, a, is at least one step removed from being a monetary form because then the primary dealer has to do something with the bank reserve in order to, to actuate and, and animate them into a monetary form. There's a couple of things there. Like I, I, first of all, for our audience, I always like to think of that there are many kinds of money. And that's part of the problem we're trying to understand because the Fed says, I'm creating money. And you say, well, the money in my billfold is money. So that's the money they're creating. But there are many kind of different formats of money, uh, subway tokens, grocery store coupons, airline miles, cash, coin, right? And some of them are useful and some of them are not. If I had laundromat tokens, yeah, it's money. Uh, but if I'm going to go and try to buy something with them, It'll take me a while to convert the laundry tokens. I've got to find someone who will accept them so that I can exchange them into something useful, which I can then send back into the economy. What, uh, so I'm going to call the, the reserves laundry tokens and the Fed's giving them to the primary dealers, well-established banks, what is that monetary format? A, first of all, the monetary, you know, the, uh, the primary dealers, they don't want to send it out further because they're scared themselves that they're going to be caught out, right? After 12 years of seeing what the central banks are doing, they realize they're on their own. But let's set that aside. What is the monetary format that the primary dealers need to be sending out into the wider economy or maybe the Fed doing it directly? Well, I think, you know, your point is, is probably a really good one to start with. I mean, you know, there are so many different forms of money that it's very difficult to distinguish even between money and credit. And by the way, you know, going back to our original purpose here, there's a history that establishes how we got this way. You know, central banks going back to the 1950s and 60s could no longer define money because the banking system itself had redefined money into all of these different exotic formats that were being used in the real economy, that's the point. Banks were coming up with their own monetary system that got out into the real economy. Some of it bled out as credit, some of it bled out as the, these interbank markets. However it was, I mean, this monetary system became its own separate system. So your analogy of laundry tokens is really a good one because that's what the Fed has been doing all along. It, it, it creates its own form of money thinking that it's a universal format. And I don't even think the Fed believes that. They just want you to believe that. As long as you believe the Fed's printing money, they think you'll act in accordance with it. So even you know, on a basic level, I think there's, there's, there's a, a level of distinction there inside the Federal Reserve too, which is we don't know how to create that effective money because we can't. We can All we can do is hope that we give the primary dealers some monetary resources, limited monetary resources, as you say, these, laundry to these laundromat tokens, and we hope that the primary dealers then create all of these different dynamic forms that the rest of the economy needs. What are those forms? Well, nobody knows. The dealers know. The banking system knows. They're going to create what's needed because they can see supply. They can see the demand. And therefore, they, if they're reasonably comfortable with the situation, we'll assume that they'll create the supply for that demand. And that's where a lot of this breaks down because if the primary dealers are either unwilling or unable 
or in, in cases like this, probably some of both, then they're not going to be able to convert the laundry tokens into something useful, whatever that usefulness is, because they're just sitting on the sidelines thinking, this is crap. We don't want to be involved in this either. And so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a self-reinforcing failure mode where the Fed cannot get the dealers to act the way that, that we need the dealers to act or just the banking system as a whole. Well, let me, let me quick, I don't want to, are there any other issues that we have to get to today before, because we could keep going on and on and on, but I, I just wanted to say, you said they're either unwilling or unable to, and I have, I give, I give uh, banks all the confidence, all the credit in the world. They are 100% able to do whatever they want to do in terms, because they'll write the regulations like water. They'll make sure if there's profit to be made, they'll do it. I think Eric uh, once said that it's one, the fifth most powerful force in the universe, right? The weak, strong nuclear forces, electromagnetism, gravity, and pro bankers seeking profit. So they're able to. It's all about willingness. And I think that's uh, missing because they see a world of risk and no return. Personal risk, personal risk. As you've written about, it's like a good bank can get taken out if they're caught out, if they don't have enough collateral. And so they dare not step out there. And I think it's a matter of confidence in central banks that's missing. That's my own little, you know, well, that's, yeah, my, that's, that's my that's belief. That's another but, good point. I think it, it flows with what happens, what's, what's going on right now. You know, the Fed continues to come out with these, people call them bazookas, and they get bigger and bigger and bigger. And today's the biggest bazooka ever. Well, the one last week was the biggest bazooka ever. And again, it doesn't work. I mean, look at the markets already this morning, and it could change the rest of the day. But there's a stock market, which used to be very much, I mean, the stock market and QE were like, you know, bread and butter. Those things went together. The stock share, shareholders loved quantitative easing. I don't think they knew why. They just knew that they loved it. And so the market would rocket ahead in any kind of QE announcement. Now, here we are in March, of, March 23rd, 220. The Fed announces its biggest QE ever. And the market went up and now it's down again. So we're starting to get to the position where people are starting to wonder, what is it that these central banks actually do? We've heard that, you know, they have the printing press, you know, Ben Bernanke's famous November 2002 speech. Um, they have all of these bank reserves. They say they print them. People say it's money printing, but yet we're, we're, we're visible. We can, we can see right now in, in the system, we're missing something big, and even the stock market, the stock market is starting to question quantitative easing, which means on a very fundamental level, people in every market, almost every market around the world are starting to wonder, what are, what are these central banks really doing? And you know, even um, I want to point out in the uh, press release that the Fed just put out, you know, they always say the same thing. The, you know, in the current one for today, it says, you know, these actions augment the measures taken by the Federal Reserve over the past week to support the flow of credit to households and businesses. You know, taken together, these actions will provide support, support to a wide range of markets and institutions, thereby supporting the flow of credit to the economy. It's almost like they're making a point. You know, we're going to use the word support over and over and over again. Yet people are starting to wonder, oh, well, how do you actually support? You know, it's not enough to just use the word how do you actually support markets in the economy? Because rather, it doesn't look like you're doing anything. And so I think we're getting to the point where finally people are starting to get something is missing here. And not just, you know, uh, uh, 
you know, academically speaking, you know, what, what's, what, would, what we were not taught in economics class, something is missing on, on a more basic level at the, at, at the central bank itself. And, and so, you know, that presents all sorts of problems for you and me, but also for the entire system, because if we have a system that's supposed to be backstopped by these people, and we're supposed to believe in that backstop, and if all of a sudden everybody, everybody is questioning, well, how does this actually work? You know, there's not really a whole lot of chance that something that they're actually going to get us out of this mess. Well, it's only beginning to filter out into the wider public and the wider press and the financial media now because of the stress. But uh, it's been happening for 12 years. And that's why I believe the economy is struggling is because uh, after 2008, we believe there might have been a recovery. But then 2011, 2012 happened again. A once in four generations crisis happened again two years later. And then it happened again, though this time it happened across emerging markets. So it didn't get quite as much press as the, uh, as the European and uh, New York London situations. But it keeps happening. And so I, I think the, uh, the, the banks, the financial institutions that provide credit to the wider economy uh, just have had their fingers burned once, twice, thrice, and now it's frice, and frice is not a word, uh, because no one in the you know in English history ever thought it would be a good, no one would ever fall for something four times. So they never came up with the word frice. And that's why, of course, in, you know, institutional banks are not creating uh, credit for the wider economy right now. But now, as you said, it's starting to, perhaps the curtain's starting to be removed. Jeff, any other key items that you wanted to address right now, this, this week? Anything on top of your mind? Well, think, Anything you know, that you want people looking for this week? You know, I, I, I want to keep the focus on collateral and repo because I think that's really where the fault line is right now. I mean, in terms of, you know, we can, we'll be, our, our goal here is to get into the, to the nitty gritty and the details and the history, all the big picture stuff over time. Right now, I think people need to be focused on the here and now because right in the thick of it, that's where we are. And that, that it really is what should take most of our attention. So we look at these, this association between the collateral breakdown in the repo market and what's happening in all sorts of risk markets, including stocks. And it's, 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 it's a visible correlation between this monetary break in the fire sales and liquidations in the asset markets. And it goes back to the idea that, you know, the repo market is, is the central backbone for this monetary system that expands the entire world. It's not just a domestic U.S. dollar system, which is, by the way, I know you, you know this, Emil, it's, it's the Fed's mandate ends at the United States border, even though the dollar system goes way, way beyond it. That's really, really what we're talking about here is we have not just a bunch of central bankers who don't know their job. They are regulatorily and statutorily incapable of doing the job that needs to be done. That's why they've tried to get around it with all of these, you know, these ad hoc programs like dollar swaps and this, this alphabet soup of acronyms that they keep going back to is how do we get out into the wider system when we, when we legally don't have any authority to do so? I mean, the central bank that we have, the Federal Reserve, is ill-suited in every possible way to deal with the problem before them. And, the, and really what bothers me is that they were ill-suited in 2008, and every, it was obvious back then when we squandered a dozen years waiting for them to figure this out and do something about it. And instead, they just thought, well, we'll do a bunch of QEs, make people happy, stock prices will go up, and that'll be enough of a fix. So 
you know, the point of emphasis that I'm trying to make here is that the repo market is a very, very pivotal, crucial piece of this global monetary system. And when it malfunctions because of this lack of collateral, it causes enormous liquidity problems across all of these markets. When you, you can't take out the, the central, you know, you can't take out your spine and hope to be able to stand up. That's really what the repo market is. And the way that you, the repo market functions is more collateral based than it is bank reserves or cash. So the lack of collateral is a massive, massive problem. And not only is, is the central bank unable to work in the outside the U.S. border, it doesn't really function on a collateral basis. And so you know, we're three steps removed from the Federal Reserve being even able to even look at the problem in the right way, let alone to be able to craft and, and execute a plan that would, that would get us out of this mess, or at least alleviate some of the damage that's being done. And you're going to be writing about that all week uh, at Alhambra Investments. And where else can people find you? On Twitter, of course. Anywhere else? Anywhere else that you're writing that you want people to? Because you, know you know what I love about your work is that you show where people can watch uh, the, the ripples because it's all shadowy, right? It's so hard to actually measure. But you point to people, point people in the right direction as to which, which monetary metrics uh, they can look to. And so that's what it's, you're going to be writing about, I'm sure, over the coming weeks. Uh, what, what data, repo fails, uh, primary dealer holdings of treasuries, and all that sort of stuff. So where where can people find your work so they can learn about because it's not in the wall street journal it's like not on the it's not on the traditional let's go to yahoo finance and see how the repo market's doing so that's that's why i want to send people your way to kind of learn about these money markets collateral markets yeah I, mo everything i write most of what i write is on alhambrapartners.com I have a column on real clear markets. There's, you know, it gets syndicated to, to certain places, to certain corners of the internet. But I think, you know, Emil, your point is exactly right, is that what we're doing is we're trying to look at something that nobody else looks at. We're trying to peer into a system that we don't, we don't have any real access to. And so what I try to do and what you try to do, what we're going to do together is try to get people to understand and point them in the right, 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 point them in the right direction of what data you can start to look at, but also give them a sense of how do you interpret this data? Mm, you know, something bro. like, you know, the Treasury International Capital Report, tick. That's been out there for many, 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 many years. And I don't think people really, re really view that data. And there's a wealth of data in, the, in, in that series. I don't think people really understand or have the framework to properly interpret what they're seeing. And so that's, you know, kind of what we're trying to do here is give you as much primary data as we can. We'll try to point you in as many directions as we can, but also give you the language, the jargon, and the ability to, and the framework to interpret all of this data in a way that actually makes sense with what we see around us. Because that's really what we want to do is, you know, this isn't just an academic exercise for the fun of it. We're trying to get a, a, our hands around how does the world actually operate so that we can operate within it and operate within it successfully. And it's, 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 a, it's a tough task and it's a tall order, but yet you and I are sitting here talking about this because nobody else seems to want to do it. They're certainly not doing it at the Federal Reserve. They're not doing it at the ECB. Uh, economists aren't doing it. And so, you know, this is, this, our goal here is to, to, to start small and, and have a discussion. And hopefully over time, we'll bring more people into the discussion. We'll bring more resources into the, con into the concept so that we can, again, from a grassroots level, 
begin to solve a problem that really needs to be solved. I couldn't have said it better. Absolutely. Our goal is to make this a collaborative uh, international effort and hear from many different voices and try to put together at, at one site uh, some sort of a guide, a handy guide, uh, a, a university on, on this system uh, that's existing in the shadows. And it'll be great. I'm excited. I'm looking forward to it. Jeff, I've already taken up 30 minutes of your time on a very important day. I'm sure you've got lots of people coming after you, asking questions, wanting answers. So let's do this again soon. I don't know how soon, because like I said, this is our kind of soft opening and it's ugly. There's no whizzes, no bang, no bangs, no excitement, uh, but uh, we'll be working on that. We'll, we'll hire professionals to do super sizzle stuff and get, make it exciting for everyone. But I hope everyone found this educational or at least interesting. And it's uh, the start of uh, hopefully a, a multi-year project. Thanks, Emil. Look forward to it. Okay. Bye, Jeff.